This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. With four short knocks on the door of her apartment on January 26, 2022, by three U.S. Marshals, Cassidy Hutchinson began her journey of deciding loyalty to her country was more important, more sustaining to her integrity than her career, her friendships, and the time she had devoted to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and President Trump. That journey and how she arrived at this pivotal, momentous time is the subject of her memoir, Enough. This book, which debuted as number one on the New York Times bestseller list, provides a narrative that is suspenseful, honest, informative, and at times shocking. At its heart is the clash between a young woman committed to public service and the most powerful office in our country, the office of the president, whose commitment in the instance of President Trump is only to himself and his vanity and his power. Cassidy risks everything to bring us the truth and her story. Cassidy, I'm just thrilled to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Well, thank you so much for having me, Roxanne. I'm so excited to be here. It's a, it's just such a riveting story. And we'll talk more about the process of writing it, but I, I literally, could not put it down. And there was one chapter in particular that was palpable. And, and I want to I want to go to that. I have rewatched your testimony before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack several times. And what we all witnessed that day in June of 2022 was a calm, articulate 26-year-old woman in her elegant white blazer with explosive testimony. Yet, in the brilliant chapter I just referred to called The Whole Truth, you share with us the nervousness, the drama, the panic, and the enormity of what you were about to do. So my question to begin our conversation is, what superhuman skill... (laughs) (laughs) Did you use to stay calm? And what did it feel like then? And how do you look at it now? You know, it's a year and a half later. Yeah, I, you know, I, I look back and I, I think a lot about that moment too, especially as I've gone through some of the media interviews and podcasts the last month, over a month now, about, about five weeks since the book has come out. Yeah, I went into that day very, with my mind made up that like that was my one time on that I was going to be doing anything TV related and then I was going to fall off the face of the earth again. Obviously, that has not been the case. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I was incredibly nervous going into that day. And I had, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about how I was going to deliver all of this. I had a lot of anxiety about how it was going to be perceived. I had anxiety about any fallout that might happen, although I did expect some fallout from Trump world. You know, I had been on the inside, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I know how they do curate tax tax on people that they perceive as disloyal. 
But I was aware of that going into it. So on one hand, I'm experiencing this extreme anxiety of, you know, I was putting myself out there. I wanted I, I wanted people to listen and I wanted people to continue listening to the committee's investigation because I believed it was of the utmost importance. But once Liz Cheney and I began exchanging in dialogue that day and she began asking questions, it was almost like like this wave of peace sort of washed mm. over me. And I was able to tune out my surroundings and just focus on what her and I were speaking about. And, you know, I I don't really love to entertain hypotheticals because the reality is I had built a relationship with her, professional relationship with her throughout this process. And I had grown to really deeply admire her when that wasn't always the case, which I go into in the book. I mean, I admired her career, but not necessarily how everything, how she handled Trump afterwards. But I came around to that side of history and she was there to welcome me to that side, to the right side of history. So it was this very weird thing where I felt like, you know, I felt still part of the world that I was a part of, a Trump world. And that was my formal breaking point from that. But then on the other side, I'm looking forward at this woman that embodies everything that I wanted to be as a public servant. And that gave me a sense of solitude and peace that I think honestly helped carry me through that Mm. interview. And even as it was going on, I didn't think that I sounded articulate at all. I was very nervous about that. But, you know, having watched it a few times, Cassidy, I mean, for one, when I was reading that chapter, I literally had to put the book down for a second because I was so nervous, even though I knew I knew the end. And then rewatching it, it's interesting that you're mentioning this because I could see, I mean, I think I watched it three or four times and you could see physically what looked like, I mean, obviously I don't know you, what physically looked like you locking in to being in the moment? Uh, yeah, I, again, I think it took a few minutes to get used to my surroundings once I was in there. There yeah. were a lot of cameras. I had been in that room before. I had worked on Capitol Hill, so I was aware of how committee hearings could be perceived, although I knew that this one was of more people would be tuning in. I don't want to say greater importance necessarily, although it was very important, the committee's work. But yes, on that point, you know, that's interesting you said it because I I honestly haven't watched the hearing from start to finish. I've seen Mm. clips, but I haven't experienced it that way. So it's interesting that you say that it looks like I sort of relaxed at some point. I remember the first few questions that Benny Thompson asked me, uh, who is the chairman. And I like couldn't think straight during those first few questions. I think I answered the first one somewhat incorrectly. But yes, I I mean Liz Cheney is somebody that I again very deeply admire. I think we'll have an opportunity to talk about that yeah. later. Also somebody that I was able to borrow her steel and her courage and how diplomatic she approached all of this. Like I I learned a lot from her just by observing her in previous interviews. But she also Again, she embodies who I wanted to be when I first entered public service. And I didn't always have those people that I was surrounded by. And for the first time, I felt like I could envision myself in position like Liz Liz with that confidence and knowing that we were speaking the truth, something that was massive dereliction of duty on behalf of the former president of the United States. And it was my duty to come forward and share what I knew. Yeah. And I I was going to talk about this later, but it makes sense for us to 
bring it up now. I mean, you talk in the book about the kind of stellar guidance that you got from Liz Cheney and the kind of understanding you developed that this could exist for you. But the other story that's very powerful in the book is 50 years before you were testifying, there was another White House staffer that was risking everything then to testify. Tell us who he is and how you came to even know who he was. Uh, you're speaking of Alex Butterfield. Who I am. Point was my my friend through a book, and then became my dear friend in real life too. In April of 2022, mid April of 2022, I had been represented by Trump affiliated counsel, a Trump World affiliated counsel. I didn't want that to be the case. I was first subpoenaed in November of 2021, spent about three months looking for counsel on my own that wouldn't have ties to Trump world. And then financially, I just, I, I mean, I had no money. I had no assets or resources. I don't come from a very wealthy family. I come from a working class family, love my family, but didn't have that cushion to fall back on. So I did turn to Trump world for counsel and they did provide counsel for me. Mid-April of 2022, I knew that leaving the interviews that I'd had, I wasn't completely forthcoming. I wasn't as honest as I wanted to be. I didn't share everything I knew surrounding the events leading up to and on January 6th. But I still was tangentially involved in Trump role. And I was sort of trying to bury all that guilt in the back of my mind so I could Mm -hmm. just move on with my life. There were pages of my transcripts published in April. And I remember reading through these transcripts and I go into a lot of detail about this in the book too, because it, it's so difficult just to sort of summarize it in like a short thing. But mm-hmm. regardless, I'm, I'm reading what I've said to the committee and it wasn't necessarily just what was in those pages, but it was also just bringing back the memories and the knowledge that I hadn't been completely forthcoming with the committee. And I recognized that as a moment where I had the chance to look for a second chance. So I went and saw a friend and then I'm driving to New Jersey and I just, I didn't really have anybody in my circles that I felt like I could look to as a role model or confide in. So I'm thinking like there had to be somebody during Watergate that had a very similar position to the position that I had in the chief of staff's office by title and by nature of our obligations and duties. And I came across Alex Butterfield's name and I saw that he hadn't written his own book, but he he co-wrote a book or he was a source for The Last of the President's Men written by Bob Woodward. So I ordered two copies of that book. And in this time where I wasn't really surrounded by anybody and I was straddling these two worlds and I felt that I needed a friend or somebody to turn to, Alex in those pages became one, my moral compass that helped guide me to where I felt that I needed to be. Two also reminded me of the person that I had wanted to become and had trailed so far off from becoming that person. Mm. And, you know, Cassidy, you know, you dedicate your book to your lawyers, uh, Bill Jordan and, and Jody Hunt. Yet I know from reading your book and what you just talked about is it was an arduous road to get there. As you say, they weren't your first attorneys. I don't think, you know, you describe in the book what it was like 
you know, I refer to those knocks on the door. You're subpoenaed. You're a young woman in your 20s without family wealth, without enough time to have saved any money. And here you are confronted with what could be hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal fees. And the the way you describe that frantic robo-dialing, you know, getting, talking to attorneys and then even having one attorney who you thought was going to allow you to have extended payment and then, you know, sort of Trump world's tentacles were all over and you couldn't get it. And your attempts were frightening. I mean, this was a, you, you were a young woman. And when when you describe what that was like to find something that you could hold on to as another way to go, it does seem like you're finding in this person of Alex Butterfield that sort of escape hatch for you. Absolutely. And just to touch on something you previously just said, which I liked, and I think it's important for your listeners to at least try to put themselves back in this moment to assuming, no, I shouldn't assume, but that they loosely follow January 6th. And if not, I'll do my best to provide a brief recap. But after Mr. Trump left office on January 20th, it was not a very friendly and Rightfully so, but was not a very friendly environment for Trump administration staffers, unless you were going to work in Trump world or for something, an organization or a person tangential to Trump world. I knew fairly quickly that I wanted to distance myself. And I spent a lot of that year working to distance myself. I, he did keep me on payroll for about three months after the end, three or four months after the end of the administration. I wasn't doing any work for him. So why he did that up for debate, I will say generosity is not his style. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Once I had a fairly good idea that the committee would subpoena me, from the start, I knew I wanted to be forthcoming. I was deeply disturbed by what happens leading up to January 6th and on January 6th. And frankly, what happened after January 6th, just how we handled it as an administration. But I also, one, it wasn't a friendly environment to be welcomed into at the end of the Trump administration. I was still a fairly new professional. I'm not making excuses for anything, but when it came time to look for an attorney, the only people that I knew I could turn to that even knew attorneys in D.C. were people in Trump world. So I tried to keep mm. my circle pretty small at first of people I was confiding in and letting know that I, you know, I was trying to pay my own legal bills up front. And I was very candid about that in conversations with attorneys that I had spoken with. But, you know, I understand that it is a business. And would things have played out differently if I had reached out to Democrats? Potentially. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know. I only know the way that things did play out. And uh, that is the story. That is the truth. That is the story that I have, one, lived to tell the tale and told the tale of. But you know, relating that back to Alex, too, I... Alex never wavered on the oath that he swore to defend the Constitution. Alex didn't want to voluntarily come forward and provide any of the information that he knew, but he knew that if he were to be subpoenaed, he would be forthcoming, he would be honest, and he wouldn't hide anything. And that's where the first big difference I found, that was the first big difference I found in the predicaments that we found ourselves in. It didn't take him multiple times to tell the truth. and. Again, I had wished that I had been there. I was very ashamed that I didn't handle it that way. 
but I did see that window of opportunity where I could handle it that way. And there was never a point ever that I thought, you know, Alex ended up revealing that Nixon had a taping system in the White House and installed in the White House. I never want at one point thought that anything of what I knew would be that damaging. I guess I'll use the word, but I thought that it's still what what I knew was important one for public perception, but two, because so many of my colleagues were stonewalling the committee and we have an obligation when we swear to defend the constitution, we take a job in public service to uphold that principle and not uphold the principal Donald John Trump that we served. So, Cassidy, we were talking about the the dramatic moment of your testimonies, but I, I, I'd like to take a step back. You began your career in public service during college. You were an intern for Steve Scalise, and later that summer, uh, you interned for Ted Cruz on the Senate side. And then very quickly, you went from your first full-time job in the Office of Legislative Affairs in the East Wing of the White House to becoming the special assistant to the president and advisor to the chief of staff in the West Wing. Now, I don't know a lot about politics or normal trajectories for a career, but it that seemed really fast to me for being in a position of extraordinary access and judgment. I mean, you were very connected to everything that was going on. People were soliciting your opinion. You were connected to members on the House. So I'm curious, did did that seem fast to you? Did it align with what you expected a career in public service to look like? You were on a first-name basis with lots of leadership like Kevin McCarthy. Was that unique to the Trump environment? I mean, what did all of that look like to you? So I guess a few things on that, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about that, especially in this phase of my life. First on that, I think this will cover a few of the questions, but was it unique to the Trump administration and was it fast or did I expect it? And the answer to both of those is sort of, I don't know. And again, I think it's important for people to remember too, one, this is my first real job. Like this yeah. is my first, I mean, exactly. I had worked my, my whole life. I had worked for the previous seven-ish, roughly years, eight years. But at this point, I'm like 22 when I accepted my yeah. first full-time job there. I just graduated college. Uh, and he's also the only administration, the Trump administration is the only presidential administration that I have worked yeah. in. So I just want to be careful, not conflate. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I will say from people I had spoken with then or even now, it seems like it is a fair, fairly unique feature of the Trump administration. But at the same time, too, I think it's important for people outside of the Washington, D.C. area to know and to be aware of the fact that many, Washington is by and large run by young people. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this image of Congress in our mind of these old white men with all the like, white hair flooding the House floor. No, that's not untrue. We are making great strides to having more equality in both branches um, or in both both chambers. But 
most of the aides that run committees and members' offices are young. So my ascent wasn't extremely out of the ordinary. It was just where I was experiencing it, I guess, is sort of Mm -hmm. the best way to explain that. But at the same time, you know, I had a job in legislative affairs where my job was essentially to run member services for the House, to know all the House members, to form and build strong relationships with them. Because the Office of Legislative Affairs, I refer to it as and others have as well, like bridge between the White House and Congress or the executive branch and legislative branch. It's our job not only to communicate what the administration expects of the Hill, but what the Hill expects of the administration. So to have people in that office that know the members and senators and have those relationships is extremely important. And that's when I formed the relationship with Meadows. So when he was named Mr. Trump's fourth chief of staff, Mark and I had a fairly close working relationship at that point. So I wasn't completely, I was surprised when Mr. Trump announced him as the chief of staff, but I wasn't completely surprised that Mark asked me to work with him just because, or work for him just because we had that relationship that I had established in Ledge Affairs. And I had relationships with people throughout the executive branch, but I also saw my job at that point as some somewhat of a nonpartisan. You know, I know I worked for a Republican administration. I considered myself and continue to consider myself a Republican, but I was it wasn't a hyperpartisan role that I was transitioning out of. Mm-hmm. And and Cassidy, so you're in the White House. I mean, th- that part of there were so many parts of the book that I was riveted by and learned from. And one part was understanding what the Office of Legislative Affairs did. And also, you did a very good job of describing sort of the high speed of everything going on. And then, you know, probably superimposed on that was Trump running what, by all accounts, not just yours, was an unusual way of operating as a president, as a White House, where people had access in all of that. And you describe in the book how powerful the notion of public service was to you and how you viewed the seriousness of that role and that commitment. What were the incidents that started popping up in the White House that might have started to be this little voice in your head saying that something was awry. Specific to January 6th or more specific to my experience working for Donald Trump and looking back on it now? I would say both. I would okay. say both. Because the two are, they're, slight, they're slightly different responses to both. That's why I wanted to make sure I, broadly speaking, ended my previous, the previous question by saying I saw my job as somewhat of a nonpartisan, recognizing that it still was a partisan role. But I didn't see myself as a partisan slinger in that era where I think many people that worked for Mr. Trump were hyper-partisan. And again, I'm I'm not speaking foully about that or how other presidents have handled things. It's it's just factual. There were a lot of people around that um, were more on like the execute Trump side of the, the agenda. I I loved working in legislative affairs. I loved working in Congress. I never expected to be hired full time at the end of my college tenure. That's sort of because I, I worked at the White House. I wanted to work in Ledge Affairs. 
I was extremely passionate about public service and that was the best place for me to start that career. And I say that to this day too, you know, mm-hmm. whether, I, whether I was in the right place at the right time or wrong place, wrong time. But I, uh, I, you know, I think it's invaluable for anybody, whether it's an internship or a full-time job, if you have the opportunity to work for the government and at any level, I think it's important just to understand how things work. But that said too, when I took the job with Meadows, I was very specific with him that I saw that role as me accepting a job working for the White House Chief of Staff, not working for White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And to me, there was a distinct, there's a, a clear distinction between the two. And the way that I saw my role was I'm going to be your person as he, he asked me to be his eyes and ears. And I was fine being that, but I, for being in that role as for the office that I served, not for the individual. Mark accepted that. And we had a good working relationship throughout my tenure with him, I would say. But there were a lot of times throughout, you know, throughout the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests that summer, reaching the end while we're reaching the campaign, where I felt my loyalty start to split, where I had in my mind this idea that I was devoutly loyal to the oath I swore and the place I was working, the institution. And at first, it was sort of subconscious and I was denying it to myself that I was becoming more loyal to Mark and to Mr. Trump. But then it became, I was conscious of it. And, you know, one example of that, probably the most profound that I talk about in the book was when Mark asked me if I would take a bullet for Mm. Mr. Trump, whether he meant that sarcastically or, you know, as somewhat of a serious question, I, I don't know. But there is a notion of loyalty in the Trump administration that you can't falter or waver on. And I did fall down that and felt myself being loyal to them. Then throughout January, you know, the post-election period, I would say in late December, before Christmas, around December 18th, this is when I, you know, I heard a lot of what was going on in the West Wing as for plans to continue to file lawsuits uh, against the election results and to, or to challenge the election results and then the, kind of going through different plans after that. And I heard all of that and I had an idea of what they were talking about. But on December 18th is when all of it sort of became more real for me. And that was the night that the former president had a meeting in the Oval Office with Michael Flynn, Patrick Byrne, Sidney Powell. And they were discussing either martial law or or invoking martial law or the Insurrection Act or both. And that's when I started having an idea of how potentially bad things were heading. And Cassidy... You know, you do a very good job of describing how easy it is to get seduced into thinking what's going on is might be normal. I mean, because you're surrounded by people who are acting like that's normal. And, you know, as a reader, I appreciated what how hard it must have been to sort of you know, almost bifurcate yourself and observe what was going on independent of this sort of fast pace, particularly after the election. So let's take one crazy thing. Mark Meadows is like literally burning stuff in his fireplace, you know, documents in his fireplace. And you've made it clear that you don't know what he was burning in his fireplace, but at some point, you must have thought that was kind of odd. Yes, I. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Det kan det kanske bli diplomatic with the way I talk about this. <laughs> like, oh, of course it was odd. And again, a lot of this too, I think a lot of this too, and I want to be clear, I had a lot of time to think about this and look back on it with hindsight. Mm-hmm. In the process of writing this book, I have processed things in ways that I probably never would have. And I'm grateful for that time. Like you said, January 6th was such a monumental and big part of what the administration was confronting during the post-election period. But there were also still day-to-day operations and functions that we had to take care of. There were some people in the West Wing that were loosely planning for a Biden transition and Biden inauguration. I still was running interface with members of Congress. We we still were working to pass the NDAA, the National Defense Reauthorization Act. So there still were other things that I was doing throughout this period too. Yeah, I'm not ex- I'm not excusing any of it at all. No. I, I should have been paying more attention to it and paying more attention to more of the minute details of things. And I probably should have put two and two together much quicker. And I'm not trying to blame it on being naive. I, you know, I I don't blame it on anything. It's just it was a product of the environment that I served in. But you know, I think even looking at some of the acts that have gotten more public attention, for instance, what you just said about Mark burning documents. Of course, that didn't seem normal to me, but it also wasn't something that I really was actively questioning in those yeah. moments. And even if I had, you know, maybe perhaps there was a day where I was like, it was bothering me. And I was thinking about it a lot, but I wasn't in a position like who I, you don't, HR, the White House is headed by the White House chief of staff. So there's not really much that somebody like me in that position could do other than talk to him about it. There are a lot of instances like this too, not just like burning documents, but instances that are completely abnormal and horrendous and not only a dereliction of duty from the former president, but also from some of the people that served him. And I think about those now in the light of, you know, I I may never know, or people may never know what had been burned. But what's important to think about now is these are the people that are actively involved, not Mark specifically, but there are a lot of people that were in Trump world in 2020 and 2021 that are on his campaign for re-election in 2024. And we have to, as a nation, have a conversation about not only Donald Trump and the dangers that he poses, but the people that surround him and the policies that they may or may not implement and just the general attitude and negligence to pay attention to laws that keep our democracy alive. And, you know, Cassidy, I really, that's what I'd like the last piece of our conversation to focus on, because we can't possibly cover everything that you've got in in detail in the book, and which is why I think everybody on the planet really needs to read this book because you do give us a bird's eye view of what life in the White House is like and what life inside that Trump White House. And you you carefully help us understand the kind of rabbit hole that it's easy to go down when you have someone like Trump who demands the kind of loyalty and behavior. And if it's all going on around you, it begins to take on a level of normalcy. And you I think you do a very good job in in the book of describing that. But what I want to come to to this last point that you're you're making is you discuss in the book the respect 
that you had for Kevin McCarthy and the close working relationship you had with him. And the days after the January 6th attack, Kevin McCarthy said Trump bore responsibility for the attacks. And Mitch McConnell mirrored those sentiments. They both very quickly changed their public position. And Kevin McCarthy did a 180-degree pivot. So on reflection, how do you understand or explain what Kevin McCarthy or others are doing now as Trump's intentions become clearer and clearer? I think Donald Trump's intentions from day one were crystal clear. Mm. And when I look back now, I have that perspective. I didn't have that perspective at the time. That is a perspective that I've grown into, one, by being surrounded by some of the most fantastic people I've ever met in my life, from everybody at Simon & Schuster to who's helped me with this project, to my collaborator, Mark Salter, who, phenomenal American, phenomenal writer, but just like a great person who cares deeply about people and about our political system and our democracy to my attorneys at Alston and Bird and Williams and Conley. So I, you know, I, for as difficult as this past year has been, I've been surrounded by so many amazing people really for one of the first times in my life that have helped Mm -hmm. me not only grow from that chapter of my life, but grow into the person that I want to become. So I only say it because I want to make sure too, like I, I didn't have that perspective. I, I voted for him in 2016. I never thought he'd be elected, but then I did go on to work for him. And I felt myself transition to that, the loyalist that I didn't want to really see myself ever becoming. And I preface this because I, you know, I'm not in the business of speaking on behalf of other people. I can't climb inside Kevin McCarthy and Rich McConnell's psyche as much as sometimes I wish that we all probably wish that we could on occasions, although also not really. Um, you know, from my experience and what I have also observed now being on the outside, as easy as it can be to fall down the so-called rabbit hole of being in Trump's grasp, whether you work for him or you work in coordination with him, like a member of Congress, or even as somebody that's a supporter of him, it can be easy to fall down that rabbit hole, but it's almost more difficult to climb your way back out of it. Mm-hmm. And I look back now on that year in between the end of the administration to being subpoenaed and how hard I was trying to claw my way out of that world at times. And it felt almost impossible, but I got to a place where I felt like it was achievable. And, but then you're sucked. I I was sucked back in and then consequentially too, like sort of my mindset was, but I had that, the moral clarity that I had had on the outside. And again, I, I say if Donald Trump were to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow, some problems would go away, but not all of them. And that's why right now with the position that I have, one, being able to speak from experience, but also from this perspective I have of the evolution of the Republican Party and how far gone the Republican Party is, especially in this next year, it is so important that, you know, there are conversations to be had with people like me who you know, I, I should rightfully have to answer why I decided to work for Donald Trump. I don't think that question's offensive. I think I also owe people a response to that. So I don't mind getting asked questions mm-hmm. along those lines. But what I don't think is productive is 
trying to shame people out of supporting Trump, whether it's a member of Congress or people who may or may not vote for him. Because one of what was so difficult also for me to sort of wrap my mind around in this period was that I was going to be leaving Trump's inner circle and entering a world that was very unfamiliar to me. And I had seen other people make that same break, but their intentions were always questioned. And this next year is so important for the survival of our democracy that we need to create an environment where one, people feel willing and able to have these difficult conversations, but they're also, they feel it's a friendly environment to have their opinions heard. And I think that has been a really big and unfortunate deterrent of people either breaking with Donald Trump and taking the Liz Cheney and the Adam Kinzinger route, which is not only the correct route to take for history, but a courageous route to take as a an elected official. I think if we can welcome more people like that and create a sense of understanding, then we're going to be better off in 2024 and hopefully in the years to come after that. Well, Cassidy, you know, I so agree with you because whatever some of us might think about Trump shaming anybody is never going to be productive. And I have, you know, I've watched as the book has been published, you're taking a a very public and powerful role of speaking out about Donald Trump being unfit for the presidency and encouraging the kind of dialogue and conversation that we need to have about preserving our democracy. And you know, you've talked about your collaborator, Mark Salter, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But, you know, fair disclosure, Mark is a good friend. And one of the things that's so striking about Mark Salter and John McCain, who we worked for, is they are driven by a sense of duty to the country. They And, and Mark's a Republican. You're a Republican. You both lament the direction that the Republican Party seems to be enthralled with now. And so what do you think it could take? It's got you being brave, Liz Cheney being brave. What will it take for the Republican leadership to begin to actually put their loyalty to the country first? What's the next, like, sort of brick that needs to fall, do you think, for that to happen? I don't, this is my opinion. Yeah, of course, of course. I don't know if it is a brick that needs to fall as much as it is a foundation that needs to be laid. And I know I touched on this earlier too, but, you know, I don't, my opinion, I don't think that anytime soon we can expect congressional leadership to suddenly make some jarring transformation when they had arguably the best and probably only opportunity to in the days and weeks after January 6th. Now, it it still could be done. At this point, there's such a strong loyalty and mentality founded in Donald Trump and the power that he holds over the party that have infiltrated our institutions. And that's not something that I think is just going to be easily solved you know, that that gets solved at the ballot box. And that's where I go back to the foundation being laid, where people in this country need to either remember, understand, or learn about how impactful their vote is and how important it is for these constituents to pay attention to what's happening in the country. And 
yeah, I said it, that Donald Trump showed us who he was in really his whole life. But in the 2016 presidential election cycle and 2020 presidential election cycle, and he's continued to show us who that man is, Donald Trump isn't changing. I think the elected officials are not going to change. How we're going to create change in this country at this point is it's a grassroots effort that involves everybody. It involves Republicans, Democrats, independents, libertarians. I don't care what you politically identify with. It's the, it's all of our responsibility to have this conversation. It's all of our responsibility to try to create the change where we can. This is a bit moment bigger than our politics. This is not about voting for an R or a D on the next presidential ticket. This is about voting for the survival of our democracy. And we are at this critical turning point right now. And that's what people need to understand. But people won't understand that unless more people are willing to speak truth to that and create the environment where it is welcoming and open conversation to have it in. So, Cassidy, to that point, and to your point on the ballot box, so, you know, a survey came out from somebody, Siena or Quinnipiac or somebody, over the last couple of days saying Trump is in in the lead over Biden in five swing states. And so if we're really going to have the conversation, just as you voted for Trump, there are people who are committed or admiring of what they consider Trump policies. So I'm curious what the insertion point of a conversation, if I'm speaking to someone who says that they are committed to Trump and they don't care about his 91 indictments and they don't care about, you know, any of this other stuff because they literally believe that he will be better for their lives, right? So there are people who believe he will be better for their lives. How do you begin the conversation with that person? You know, it's difficult because I think it really depends on the person and the constituency that you're speaking with. And again, I I want to disclaim, and I'm adding a lot of these, that I, I don't have the perfect recipe for any of this. All I can do right well, now is course. try. And I, I feel like this is the next most natural step for me because of one, the experience that I've had, but also another thing that I owe the country is to continue correcting some of the mistakes that I've made. And I'm not saying that working for Donald Trump was a mistake, but I handled things that I consider that I look back on and I wish I had handled differently. And I think that helping have these conversations is important, but, you know, I, I think whether we're having that conversation with a suburban mother, a suburban housewife, a suburban working mom in Michigan or Pennsylvania, or we're talking to a working class family in Arizona or a middle class family in Georgia. There's a lot that's going to happen before November of 2024. You know, I I hate to even hypothesize or catastrophize Trump being the nominee on the Republican ticket. I think that we all need to do everything that we can to make sure it's not a Biden Trump ticket next year. we have a window of time where it doesn't have, we don't have to go down that road. You talked about the polls. It does look like it, that is going to be the reality of what we're facing at this moment in time. But what I think about when I, you know, if what, if somebody came up to me and was talking about whether it was a specific policy or Trump's policies as a whole, again, this moment to me is bigger than the partisan politics of this. 
This is about a man who has demonstrated to us time and time again. And after the fact too, even facing 91 criminal charges in various jurisdictions, that he has no regard for the U.S. Constitution, that he has no regard or does not care about our laws that have guided us since the founding of our nation. He has shown us that he doesn't, he's not particularly fond of many service members who have died for our country and put their lives on the line for our country. I mean, look no further than what he did to John McCain until the day the man passed away, who was one of the most revered and honorable Americans of our lifetime. You know, the character of Donald Trump is what people would be voting for, not his policies. If we want to vote for somebody that is going to fight for the survival of our democracy and to fight for the survival of the American experiment, Donald Trump is not the way to vote on that ticket. Mm -hmm. And I would fear that if we do go down that road and he does win a second term in office, then we might not be voting for the same things that we did this past election cycle that we would be in 2028. Yeah. So really what you're saying, which is an interesting way to put it, is whatever his policies are, are sort of secondary. If they're... Well, I think it's important to talk about some policies. And the only reason I tread cautiously on that one, because... We don't know the outcome of the House. It really, it, or the House or the Senate races too. So really, the, his policies being enacted, not from executive order, like we just would have to see how that would play out. Mm-hmm. Politicians all the time campaign on policies, specific policies and broad policies that they don't hold themselves to when they win the Oval Office. Donald Trump did that in 2016. But there are some policies that I think are very important to talk about. For example, uh, he allegedly has an executive order ready to go on day one of a future potential Trump administration that would essentially empower the executive branch of the president to fire any career civil servant, but schedule F employees of the government. That is something that was discussed and reported on it at the end of the first Trump term. And that is extremely for pe- important for people to understand now because we're talking about a man, again, who wants to be able to fire career civil servants because they're not loyal to him. Loyal. That is profoundly undemocratic. That is profoundly unrepublican. But again, it doesn't even matter whether it's a Republican or Democrat. That is a man that is, has one interest and one interest only, and that is to serve in the Oval Office as the executive as the executor of the United States because he's there to serve himself. Mm. And And I think that, I mean, basically, it sounds to me like an autocratic regime that's full of revenge is, you know, every day we hear more and more about what this administration is going to look like. And I think we can keep hoping that the message will get through. I want to close our conversation, Cassidy, on two kind of personal notes, if I could. As we've mentioned, you had a collaborator on the book with Mark Salter. What was it like to write this book? And what was it like to work with a collaborator? I mean, Mark tells me you're a damn good writer. So, a damn good writer. So, and I'll say to that. No, Mark. I think I said this earlier, Paul. Like I'll reiterate until I'm blue in the face. Mark Salter. There have been a lot of people that have come into my life, especially in this past year and a half, that have 
I, I call them like my angels or my North stars or this, these people that I feel like I'm so undeserving of having in my life and as support systems for me as I go through this transition and I grow into this person that I want to become. Mark has been one of the most rewarding, but also honorable experiences of just being able to work with a man like Mark Salter. Mark Salter, again, he's had a very revered career working in Republican politics, but that aside, Mark is emblematic of what, of, of what I think that every American should strive to be. Mark cares deeply about his country. He cares deeply about the people that he cares about. He cares deeply about his family. You know, he he's just a spectacular person. I'm off my soap, Mark Salter soapbox now. Um, but this book would not have been possible without Mark's help. You know, Mark is a fantastic writer, has was able to help pull the story out of me in ways that I never would have been able to by myself. He was incredibly mm-hmm. patient as we wrote a lot in a very short period of time. And I worked through a lot of difficult emotions and things that I hadn't processed. But this book wouldn't have been the way it is without Mark because Mark has really helped open my eyes, not only to how abnormal things were in the way that I experienced mm. them in the Trump administration, but being able to help me grow and learn as an American about what nonpartisan, what we actually stand for. You know, there were times that Mark and I would bicker. What if I, because I, I also was intentional to write the book in what I call real time. So to take the reader through how my mind was operating at that moment so they can feel with the idea of having them feel the emotional tug that I had felt. So Mark and I got in plenty of little spats about the <laughs> you know, things that I would say or think policies that I would defend in real time in the writing, but I would we would talk about them afterwards. So like for instance, the first impeachment. But more of a complex experience looking back. Yeah, I don't want to speak on behalf of Mark Salter, but he uh just a really incredible person to work with. And I was sort of dreading the process of working at the collaborator, not going to lie, because I, I like to have control over the projects that I work on. Yeah, well, we figure that out in the book. To work with. <laughs> Cassidy, we figure Great. out your interest and control in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, I mean, there are days that we sat side by side, either at my kitchen countertop or at Mark's, at Mark's desk in Alexandria. Both of our laptops out, like writing together in unison. So, yeah, he... You know, I, I can't thank him enough for a lot of things and beyond the book, helping me through such a trying period of my life. Mm. Yeah. Well, we could either one of us could be the president of the Mark Salter fan club. So <laughs> <laughs> before I close with a summary, what what's your what's your hope for the future of the Republican Party. What's your hope for yourself? You've been through what somebody else might consider a lifetime of experiences. What's your hope right now? Um, Right now, you know, I'm still growing into this role and I would be doing a disservice to your listeners and to myself if I didn't admit openly that it's, this has not been a completely easy process. It's been very rewarding. But I am adjusting to living a more forward-facing life. And it's not something that I particularly wanted or envisioned for myself at this point in my life, but it's something that I I recognize also sort of as a duty. I know we have talked about this, but to me, I have this next year loose plan and I don't know what the plan exactly looks like or how it will, how it will unfold. 
But I think right now it's my obligation to continue speaking truth, not only to what Donald Trump is capable of and to what I experienced in the White House in those days, but to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to reach as broad of an audience as I can, as I'm able to, to make sure that I have the conversations that I need to have or can have. So Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee on the presidential ticket next year. And if he is, I see it as my obligation and my duty and a choice that I will consciously make to do everything I can to make sure that he ends up nowhere near the Oval Office ever again. It's a duty that I take very seriously and I'm still trying to learn the best way to figure out how to get that message out there. But it's something that I think is profoundly important and writing the book is the first step of that process. Yeah, so I want to thank you for taking the time to be in conversation about this. I want to thank you for writing the book, which, as I said earlier in our conversation, I think history buffs want to read it. Politically interested people should read it. People who want to know what it's like to find the courage to speak up in the midst of a counterweight. And I I do believe and I do hope that just as you found Alex Butterfield as a source of inspiration or Liz Cheney, that there will be somebody out there tomorrow or in 10 years or in 50 years that will read your book or know what you did, and they'll be inspired to also take actions that are honorable despite what's going on around them. I just think I I am grateful as an American that you did what you what you did by testifying and that what you will continue to do. So Cassidy Hutchinson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne, first for having me on today and helping me connect with your listeners, but also for listening as a whole and caring about what we're going through as a nation. You know, it takes people like you and your listeners and everyone that we can reach this next year to create the change that hopefully we can as a nation. And I just want to thank you too for, you know, not only paying attention to January 6th developments, but to paying attention to the current state of our democracy. Thanks, Cassidy. Thank you, Roxanne. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. 
The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.